This is Omo. 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 Hello and welcome back, Omo Sapiens. I have with me today Rosie Deloach with a very exciting interview coming up with Sam Zygmuntofich. Hello, Rosie. How are you doing today? Hi, Catherine Kidwell. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Uh, you just had a birthday yesterday. I'm two, actually two days away from my birthday. I just, but I celebrated over the weekend. So, oh, fantastic! Well, yeah. a very happy birthday to you. Thank and you. You got kind of a, a nice surprise early birthday gift. Uh, <laughs> you've been wanting to interview Sam for quite a while. Is that correct? It's true. I have. This is a fellow. And for those of you guys who don't know, we're going to explain who Sam Zygmuntovich is. I will say, first off, everybody who meets him unanimously says, awesome guy, amazing guy, lovely human. And uh, he's somebody who is in demand as far as making, very much in demand. There is quite a wait list. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to talk about dollars, but People um, are clamoring to get to get his instruments. Uh, and uh, I don't want to waste the guy's time. So when I first met him, I said, I really want that guy to be on Omo. And I also want to feel really secure about what I do here and so that I can get the best interview possible. So that was my early birthday gift to interview Sam. And uh, this fellow lives in... He lives in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, he lives yeah. over in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. I just want to make sure I got my boroughs right. Yeah. <laughs> For any of you out there who have read the book called The Violin Maker by John Marchese, you'll be happy to know that that we're going to continue off of this and follow a little bit. Uh, Catherine, have you read that book? I haven't, actually. I It's helping with the notes for this episode and reading through everything you had written down. Um, I actually learned about the book through that. And so now I'm quite excited to read it. It's a great read. And I always like someone who can write well about what it is like to devote so much of your time and your essence and your spirit and your aging of your body through hard work and um, effort into doing a craft. And uh, this book certainly gives credence. So uh, he's coming up. Catherine, you have met him at his shop. I did. I met him very briefly. It was like a, a very short one hour, one hour interaction. He was leaving that morning to go off. And I think he was going to a conference um, at the time, but they had just packed up a bunch of stuff and about to head out. I was staying with MJ Kwan up uh, with her in Brooklyn. I joined her to the shop that morning uh, to see it. And she went to the shop and I ran around the corner and got muffins and then ran back. Because uh, you always bring sweets when you go to visit a person's shop. And so shared some muffins, chatted with him for a quick hour, uh, and he booked it off on the road. But meeting him for a little bit, he was quite lovely, uh, very articulate, uh, excited to hear from him again today. 
Yes. Yes. And one more thing that we got into, it actually took a lot of the interview up uh, <laughs> now that I think about it, because <laughs> I, I wrote a bunch of questions about the book and then we just kept going because uh, he's got so much to share. Uh, we talked about the Strad 3D project and some of the other endeavors that have taken place after that. So people out there, homo sapiens, coming up after the break, we present to you. Sam Zygmuntovich. Homo sapiens, I have with me here today Jackson Maberry, maker of J.G. McIntosh Rosinate Oil Varnish. Jackson, along with making varnish, you also offer oleoresinous ground. How is that helpful? I appreciate your asking that question. Um, so b- before applying any color, uh, it's important to apply some kind of ground or size or sealer to an instrument. Those u- words are used sort of interchangeably. Mostly this is to prevent the color varnish from soaking in to the wood, which can damage the appearance of a figure, um, you know, get that what they call burned effect in the maple, for example, um, or splotchiness in the end grain regions of the spruce. Um, and of course, your color varnish soaking into the wood will also weigh the instrument down. We don't want that. Um, So while there are many things that you can use, like uh, dilute hide glue or casein or um, shellac, um, I feel that a ground composed of specially compounded linseed oil and resin is the best. I mean, optically. Uh, It's also consistent with analysis of uh, historically important instruments. You know, studies have been done on what's in there. And so we see oil and resin. Now, I think that my ground is fairly easy to apply, and it highlights the natural beauty of the wood without getting in its way. Get your J.G. McIntosh rosinate oil varnish and other varnishing supplies today by visiting woodfinishingenterprises.com. Search McIntosh. A special thanks to House of Note, a luthier-owned violin shop in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, for their support of this episode of OMO. While covering the many demands that we deal with in this industry, from restoration to repairs for players at all levels, House of Note wants you makers to know they sell quite a few modern maker instruments and bows. If you've just done your final setup for your violin and you're looking to hang it in a shop that understands new instruments, look no further than House of Note. Check them out today at houseofnote.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Omo sapiens out there. I have with me today someone who needs no introduction. Please welcome Sam Zygmuntovich. Hi, Sam. Hi, it's fun to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I am going to ask you several questions. Some of them I'm going to pull from the book that a lot of us out here have read, The Violin Maker by John Marchese. And I, I would like to further discuss some of the things from that book. Sure. One thing that is said by the author is a luthier, a really good one, is at once a woodworker, an engineer, a historian, a mechanic, and a shaman. What kind of person takes up this trade? Do you have any thoughts on all the parts that it takes to be good at this job? Well, I have a whole sociological theory, depending on what generation you're in, about who comes into this. Oh, well, for people of my generation, you can often ask them what the first instrument they ever made was. And if they say it was a dulcimer or a banjo, 
you know, they were sort of vaguely counterculture-y, but just a little young for, to be hippies who were looking for something a little more organic to do as opposed to going to college and probably a little ADD and uh, found, uh, you know, well, actually, if you talk to the guitar makers and the potters and the goat cheese makers and the violin makers of, you know, a certain age, we sort of fit a profile. I see. But uh, but otherwise, uh, I mean, for myself, um, you know, my early training was, uh, I don't know if you want to call it training, I was a sculptor from the time I was little, as early as I can remember. And uh, I had a microscope, so I, I was also curious about how things worked. And uh, I started, was interested in music, so... Uh, it's a longer story, but the short version is that this pulls all those interests together. Yeah. Any speculation on younger folk and why they get into this? No idea why. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, no, not not to be so flip. I mean, there's. Uh, I actually don't know generationally, um, but uh, like people who work with me, I'm working with uh, MJ Kwan and Jack Devereaux, who are both really fine makers. And uh, MJ um, was a classical musician and an architect who decided she wasn't going to pursue those things. So that's one route is people who came in from the world of classical music. Um, Jack was, is a very accomplished professional bluegrass musician. Um, and I think he got tired of being on the road. So those are, you know, uh, you could say that there's a, a, this is a profession, which is often a, um, a, 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 what would you call it? It's where, uh, a sane way to make a living in an artistic way without doing whatever insane way you first set out to do, like trying to be an artist or trying to be a musician. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> there's a few, there's a few fields where you can exercise your artistic gift and and make a little money on the side. So, and we found ourselves here. <laughs> Right. But it's, you know, it's also like, I think that's always interesting to find out, you know, did you have a meaningful thing that you did before you went into violin making or was it pretty much like your route? And uh, I mean, I feel, um, I guess I want to say lucky, but you know, you never know, but I started very, very young. So um, uh, I never had another field as a, an adult. You know, I started working with musical instruments in one form or another when I was 13. So uh, it's been a, a long along and very deep furrow. Lovely. Uh, one other thing that you do say in the book is what I want, and I suppose what violin makers would want, is a little handbook that would say, for instance, if you want to make your instrument more powerful in the upper register, try making it thicker here, 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 and here. This seems like the kind of project you attempted to answer for yourself when you did the Strad 3D project. You made copies of three instruments of renown. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about those three that you um, decided to tackle, reasons behind tackling them, uh, a little bit about what you learned? Well, I'll start, I'll back up a little bit because the question of like, um, if you want to get a specific tonal result, what would you do structurally? Seems to me the essential question that all of us have to answer. Uh, I mean, a lot of people, you know, one of the blessings and curses of violin making is that it's got this long, long and very powerful um, uh, lore and tradition. And if you do what people have done successfully for a long time, you'll be, you won't make a big mistake. So uh, all the smart money rides on doing things exactly as they've been done for a long time. So, um, and I think a lot of people are drawn to being violin makers for that reason, because it's sort of, a, it's a, um, 
it, 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 the main skill of a violin maker is being able to delve deeply into what has been done and understand what has been done, just what has been done, not why it's been done. Um, now, if you're not satisfied with that as an answer, then, then you're on very uncertain territory because it's very hard. The, the empirical lore is so strong that, um, that your attempts to innovate or understand or experiment often are, are, are weak by comparison and often not successful at first. Um, but that's always been, you know, from the beginning, I always wondered, well, why are things the way they are? This is sort of temperamental, personality-driven, philosophical, existential, whatever you want to call it, thing that has driven me my whole life. It's like, why do we do the things that we do? So um, uh, now that's taken many different forms. Um, you know, and I've always kept very close records on my instrument making, you know, you're always trying to understand, well, what will, what worked last time or what could work, be better? Or you run into a problem and how do you fix the problem? And then, you know, you can come to a, the state of making a pretty good violin based on known knowledge, but then when you want to troubleshoot you, what do you draw on? So that's, I think, the basic question that we have that, and the, the whole in violin making is like, what do you know about what you're doing? For the most of us, it's very little. So that's the background for me, um, is not being satisfied with knowing so little. Um, but I think one of the experiments I did just immediately before Strat3D was the Gluey project. Yes, I was gonna ask about Gluey. <laughs> well, it was a predecessor. I mean, Strat3D I'll get into, but it, that was, uh, uh, I mean, first, you know, first you try to answer these questions of, why do we do what we do and what does it mean and how does it work? First, you try to solve them with the, the techniques and the, the methods that are within our grasp. So I've been a restorer. So, you know, one of the things restorers do is um, make old instruments like, you know, make a Strad sound as expensive as it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. you know, which sometimes takes quite a lot of doing, you know, and you can totally remake an old instrument. So that was one of my first um, exciting realizations is just how fluid the instruments are they're not just like you make them and they're done and then they sit there um, you can change them at any time like they can change on a bad day or a good day with the weather yeah you mentioned in, in one of these three we're going to talk about how responsive it was to changes in setup right well i mean many instruments are the better the instrument the more responsive it is to, to changes in setup um, so we've all done you know adjustments sound posts and bridges and, you know, you poke around for a while, you get, you get a certain amount of like positive territory and then you stop. Um, you know, that's usually how an adjustment works. You know, someone comes in with a problem, they're not very happy, and then you start doing things and they get a little happier and you do a few more things and they get even happier. And then you say, let's, let's stop right here. We're, we're happy right now. Let's not take it too far until you get, have a chance to be unhappy again. <laughs> anyway, so the question is, how flexible can an instrument be beyond just regular sound posts and bridges? So Gluey was just, a, um, it was a cheap violin that um, I re-graduated and thinned out a little thinner than you normally do. And I made little, I made little um, veneers, basically with rosin on them, that you could attach little things the size of a repair stud to the surface of the instrument and stick it on with a hot knife. So you could play the instrument, say, well, what would happen if I put a little stiffener here right below the treble F hole and mm -hmm. say, well, let's try it, stick it on. Then you play it again. It's like, well, that was better. And then you say, what if I did another one right, in this, right next to it? And that's even better. What if I took off the first one? 
that's even better. I mean, it's like, it's like this weird mobile where everything you do and then you put one on and says, no, that's not good. I'd, I would love to do that for cello wolf tones. That sounds amazing. Oh, well, um, you know, there's a, a friend of mine, Ryan, Ryan Acheson, who's a cello maker. And he's been one of the few people who's, who've taken the gluey technique and made it a real centerpiece of what he's doing with his making, which was exciting for me because actually in many ways he's gone further with one of my ideas than I have myself and really incorporated it into his regular making. But I mean, one of the, the um, uh, and if you want to call it insights, one of the shocking results of this experiment is that the instrument was like, excruciatingly sensitive in areas that you would never have imagined, like little areas near the lower blocks. You put a little thing on there and it would like, you know, just juice up a certain area or tiny pieces near the F-holes. And um, it's like, well, we just make these instruments. We make them like, how did I, how did you make it? Well, I made it really thick. Like how thick, where? Um, And then you realize actually the surface is just like uh, um, it's like this pulsating. If you could see it vibrating, then yeah. you would see that it was like a, a, a energy matrix or some kind of weird, you know. Um, uh, and and, and is- none of those top plates are completely uniform. There's always variations and the maker's handles slip a little bit. So it can't help but just have little idiosyncrasies. Well, absolutely. Actually, if you look in Jeff Lone's, um book of graduations, I don't know if you've seen that book, um, but a lot of it's worth seeing. But it was just basically a bunch of charts of old instruments and some new instruments, just graduation charts with topic, you know. And the old instruments tend to be like, you know, they look like they're just inc- just super irregular, some of them. And then the new instruments are like uniform. Um, and uh, so it's one of the things you can say that just for a basic observation is that uniform is not necessarily better. And that it's, you could say that part of... Uh, I guess my own uh, search, whatever you want to call it, is to look at things not in general terms, but in highly, highly specific, articulated, detailed um, ways that the the, 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 um, the things that we're looking for, you know, the basic overall structure is pretty well understood, but the little details are so fine that you could never, you probably just couldn't actually understand them. You might be able to find them. They're so irregular and so so dependent on everything else it's like a big mobile you put a little weight on one spot and everything else shifts mm-hmm. and um, you're making alexander calders as you exactly yeah. exactly I, and i find this personally a very satisfying way to see the instrument which is that it's like it's not what you see what you see you see the skin you know but what's under there is so much richer and so much so alive um so that's uh, and so gluey was you know you could change an instrument um 10 times in 10 minutes um, more. And, um, and the instrument sounded, uh, could sound uh, shockingly good. And this was like a nothing violin I started with. So then I realized, all right, well, the surface is, um, the whole instrument is so excruciatingly sensitive, but you know, it would take a lifetime to go hunt and peck all the combinations you could do. You never could, you know, I mean, every combination would be different. So. How do we actually understand that in a more reasonable way, as opposed to just saying, you know, uh, what I thought at the time, my joke to myself was, just, I felt like the guy who discovered acupuncture, but I didn't have all those maps of meridians. I just knew if you stick needles into people, things happen. <laughs> uh, 
Which actually, my experiments show that that's true. <laughs> no, I actually don't. No needles. No people you're, have been harmed. Poor employees. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, actually, I used to like to put safety pins through my fingertip calluses. Like they were like little claws when I was a kid. Did you ever do that? No, um, I did. I did not ever do that. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> um, an inquiring mind is a dangerous thing. Um, so. So anyway, so there was this hunt pe- hunting and pecking approach to acoustics, and uh, it worked pretty well. And I remember even uh, Rene Morel, my teacher, who was a, a restorer, I showed this to him. And it was uh, to someone who's done restoration, that gluey technique is actually very intuitive because people glue stuff inside violins all the time. And, um, and they put patches in, and they put new bass bars in, and they thin areas. So everyone knows that you change the structure, you change the sound, just people don't really have a very specific idea about it. So um, how would we find out more about how this very complicated object works? Certainly. Now you need to know more about changes in arching and uh, changes well, arching in bass bars. Yeah. All this right. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into arching later. That's a very, sure. very, very long one. But uh, just a little bit about Strad 3D. So, yes. um, um, you know, so I've been part of, I was part of the Oberlin violin making program. I think I was one of the, you know, I came in with Chris at the beginning and I was mm-hmm. on staff I uh, for there for the first five years or so. And then I was like, uh, my, my role was to be the pain in the ass. I always said, well, what do we know about base bars that we actually know for ourselves that not just something we heard uh-huh. and like everyone was kind of quiet. Anyway, I got kind of tired of like the, the, the imbalance between the lore and what we know. So then I kind of jumped over to the violin acoustics workshop that was run by Norman Pickering and Joseph Curtin. I was going to say that sounds very acoustics, all of your right. questions. Yeah. Uh, right. Although then of course with the, uh, in the world of acoustics, which was like largely led by uh, physicists and engineers, um, they were looking at basic phenomena that are totally a side issue to what we as violin makers worked on in our daily life. So they know a tremendous amount about what they know, but their, their motivation is not to tell us how, how much spring we should put in our bass bar. That is not a question to them. That's a technical, if you want to call it anything, it's maybe an engineering question, but it's not a physics question. So um, that was one of the things is that uh, I remember a physicist, uh, Eric Janssen, was giving a talk and one violin maker asked him a question and Eric, who was a very lovely man, uh, said, your questions are not the same as our questions. So that was, I think, a very um, important realization for me. And one of the things about Gluey, just to jump back, is that yeah. it was, um, you know, in, in the meeting between violin makers and scientists, scientists hold all the cards in terms of expertise about physics, about how to do experiments, about how to process data, um, uh, about equations. And um, doing Gluey was my the first time I felt like I seized the initiative back from the scientists. I brought acoustic experiments right into my own world where I could manipulate things with techniques that I understood that came from restoration. And I could evaluate them by playing the instrument in a way that was um, intuitively um, satisfying so um and uh, so i think that's been part of the process for me and i think for our whole field is trying to 
to to to take the initiative for understanding the violin you know to to learn from the scientists and then take that knowledge and and usurp it in our, for ourselves yeah so um so brings us to the acoustics workshop where i had the opposite role instead of saying what do we know i was the guy who was saying but what do we do about it how do we use this and finding very few questions so for the last number of years i just go back and forth between the workshops and you know annoying everybody kind of places <laughs> good for so, you Brad 3D. Yes. Um, um, George Bissinger, who was one of the heavy hitters in the acoustics workshop, had a really great acoustics lab, and um, uh, with a modal analysis setup. Modal analysis means a way to study the vibration patterns of a violin using visualization techniques. So um, he was offered the use of uh, they use laser scanners, which uh, is non non non-invasive, non-contact way of, of testing vibration on the surface. Okay. It's offered the use of this super-duper um, state-of-the-art 3D scanning array by Polytech, the company who makes them. But he had to have a Strad so that the Polytech people could tell their board of directors, we're going to scan a Strad. Um, everybody wins. Good. Everybody wins. <laughs> okay. So who's going to get a Strad? So then that's where I got into the picture. So I basically cajoled various of my clients and... Um, amazingly and naively and very sweetly i was able to they agreed to lend me three fantastic violins um the titian strad which is really one of the greatest strads ever uh golden period 1715 the uh wilmot strad of uh, 1732 or 34 i'm fading on it uh, but one of the very late ones and the plowden gornary which is one of the greatest uh gornaries and uh People were very generous, and we took them to the lab in, in um, I think it was uh, North Carolina, and uh, and did this whole and you know Bissinger led this study, so they did modal analysis with three D lasers on these instruments. They put them through a CT machine, uh, which at that point was a pretty new technique. Um, uh, so we had CT scans of the instruments. They did acoustic scans, which means they put the instruments in a anechoic chamber, a chamber with no echoes, with 250 microphones arrayed around the instrument. Ooh. So you could tell exactly what direction sounds were coming off it. Um, and uh, so that was all George. And But my uh, little epiphany was that, I mean, I, I looked at these early images. Anyone who's interested in this, by the way, can just go to um, www.strad3d.org. It's all up there for free. Um, so, um, and there's some fun stuff there. Um, I thought, well, the images I was seeing, these, these uh, modal animations, we call them. A mode is one way of vibrating. It just blew my mind. I mean, I'd never, I, I you know, it's sort of like, as makers, like, I think we all are trying to visualize how this object is going to vibrate when it's all put together. And we're flexing it as because we know it bends when it's it's flexing when it vibrates. So mm -hmm. if we flex it, is that anything like it's going to be for real? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, but we're trying to like simulate in our work practice how it's going to. Is it too stiff? Is it too flexible? Should it be thinner here or thinner there? Is it a, a, exciting to you in that we um, often use descriptors like? sweet, rich, powerful, thin, reedy, and now you're just seeing it as scientific data instead well, the, of- the whole subject of language is another, another yeah. very deep, well, um, <laughs> uh, but I, I am say, saying, saying though, that, you know, when we're working, 
I mean, what is describing it is an interesting topic, which we can touch. But yeah. um, but just actually, you know, what we're doing is we're making a physical object, which is going to like take a certain amount of strain and it's going to be strung up and strings are going to be sitting on it. And someone's going to be pulling a bow across it. And strings are going to be. So it's going to be vibrating in ways that we can't see at all. And we're just trying to like suss it out by guesswork. Um, that is, um, and it's, you know, with these modal animations, it's as if all of a sudden it's like, you know, I'm looking at you, but instead of seeing the you that you see with your eyes, it's like, I can see the, the electric currents in your brain and I can see your adrenal system and hormones and nerves firing. And, um, it's like, it's, uh, I love those PET scans of, you know, which is a type of scan of people's brains. Like, you know, they, they give them a taste of chocolate and one section lights up and they, you know, they, they they poke them with a pin and another different section lights up. It's sort of, um, so being able to actually physically or literally visually see what is really happening the violin's brain. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, anyway, that just blew my mind. But then I thought, okay, so there's this whole new body of information, but it, cool. So what, you know, um, it doesn't supplant what we know as violin makers. Violin makers are in possession of a very powerful body of information. Everyone who is making a violin now has, you know, done a lot of their own research and chosen their models and is working very carefully we have a tremendous amount, and we know very well how to document instruments in a more visual way, photographs, measurements, uh, tracings, um, plaster casts, strad posters, very expensive books, you know. Um, and then musicians know how to evaluate things. They can record things. So there's all kinds of other ways of gathering information of instruments. That's more like in our realm as instrument makers, but no one's ever put all those things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought... That I'm in the right point. I don't have any, I'm not any better than anyone else in any of these things in particular, but I'm sitting right here at the pivot point between the world of science and the world of music and the world of making. And I'm just going to put like, it's like throwing a party. I'm going to take all this information and put it in one place. And uh, I just uh, basically pestered and cajoled a lot of people into helping me. So, um, you know, the three violins we managed to piggyback on a, Emerson string quartet recording session. Like I just paid for an extra hour of recording time and we did a sound tests of matched excerpts of the three instruments. Um, Francois Denis did a reconstructed the um, geometric drawing of the Titian and the Plowden. Um, you know, I, I did my, my measurements, you know, usual, like, you know, we put on a Strad poster. Um, Tucker Densley did beautiful photography um, I got a, a violinist client of mine to do the playing for the sessions. Um, John Topham did uh, Denver chronology. Um, uh, so we have, you know, in one place you can go from, you know, uh, I don't know if other people see it, but to me it's like it's a tour where you start on the on the visual and the oral, and then you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the areas you don't normally see. So you could start by looking at the photos, just like you would at a Strad poster. And actually I've made Strad posters of those three instruments as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but that stuff. So oh, look, look at the pictures. Nice. Well, let's look at the measurements. Here they are. Um, let's hear them. You can do that. You can compare excerpts. This is, well, what does the sound analysis tell us about what we're hearing? You can look at that. Now on sound analysis, it's made of, you know, the sound is made out of a, a, a rainbow of, of uh, harmonics that, 
you know, are mixed in different ways to make a particular stew that we hear. So what is the harmonic content? We could look at the sound analysis and each of those harmonics is, um, or each of the is caused by the way, particular vibration modes. And then we could look at how does it actually vibrate? And then you can go to the vibration animations and see how it actually vibrates. And then if you've lasted that long, there's a whole article archive of, you know, <laughs> ranging from my Stratomatic magazine articles, Joseph Curtin and, and Martin Schleski have articles there all the way to the very, very technical articles by, by George Bissinger. Yeah. But, um, Anyway, so that was Strad 3D. Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, you took your information, uh, lots and lots of content from these three instruments, but then you made your own bench copies of... Well, that was later. You know, when I actually okay. pub when we published Strad 3D, mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly peer-reviewed, but it was in essence peer-reviewed. You know, George is a, Dr. Bissinger is a serious scientist. I didn't want to compromise his work. Okay. So I did not, there was no speculation. There's none of me saying, well here's how it works. It's just like, here's the, here's the photos, here's the measurements, here's the sound recordings, here's the sound analysis, here's a bunch. Of so this is your addendum when you. Right. So, but then the question is, all right, which people ask me, all right, well, you have all this information. Um, how does it help? And then you have sort of this long, awkward answer where you go, um, it's fun. It, uh, it's interesting. It must help in some way. So anyway, it, it, the answer to how it helps is not a short and easy one. So, um, so anyway, the question is, so let's, where's the proof of concept? I have this trove of documentation of great instruments as extensive as anyone could have up to this point. So what do you do with that? If you used all that information, would you, you know, you use the recipe and description of a strad specific strad will you come up with anything that resembles it or is it just all beyond us um so uh, over it i made those instruments just as personal projects and i didn't make them all at once but i made a copy of the plowden as you know um i guess you'd call it a bench copy but including the density of the materials and including the internal structure um and the arching as close as i could get it um and then i did the titian same way and then i did the wilmot uh, most recently which was the most extreme the fullest arching and i tried to match the wood i tried to do everything that one can do still to be honest you know there's no such thing as an absolute copy because things are twisted and they're moving and yeah, i had to they're, you know, they're so products of age as well yeah right and uh, um and my an interpretation so i'm not they're they're not there is no such thing in my view as a true replica so, but they're what I would consider uh, bench copies. Um, so did they resemble the original? And I'm not saying, uh, I was not trying to say that these instruments are indistinguishable from the original. I'm saying that these three, if you want to consider the Strad 3D instruments like uh, um, a cohort or like siblings, you know, they have their little family of my Strad 3D family and the Plowden very smooth and dark and the titian is quite uh, um, quite focused and um, uh, full with a little bit of an edge and the, the Wilmot is uh, um, yeah. Yeah, well the Wilmot I think has the most uh, distinctive sound and uh, most distinctive structure with the high arch and it's a I would say almost an astringent very ringy very sizzly um, yet still deep 
um, vocal kind of sound. So anyway, they have a relationship to each other. And then, um, so would the new instruments have the same relationship to the, to the, to, e the, to them as a little family of new, new Strat 3D knockoffs, but they relate to each other in a similar way than the, the pr progenitors, the models. Um, so, uh, and how would you just, how would you even decide if they did? You want to just take my word for it and when they say, oh, they were great. They were just like the originals. <laughs> well, you, you again, revert to taking, getting data points. Um, you've got a graph that charts the, the low range, middle range, and high range of all three and how the violins react in those ranges. And then That's right. turn that yeah. to a graph. Right. So, I mean, I want to say like, it's, it's, it's not so useful for me just to say, yeah, I thought they, they, they sounded kind of right. I mean, we do have this tool of, 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 of uh, spectral analysis where we take a sound sample from an instrument and then analyze the content and display it as a graph. Now it's just a jiggly graph. Not everybody likes graphs and in and of itself, it doesn't mean anything, but as a comparative tool, it, sh it shows you what the capabilities of each instrument is. Um, and it is a way of taking a snapshot, whether it's a good snapshot, you can argue about, but it's a snapshot. And you can take it the same way for the old instruments and you could take it for the, the same way for the new instruments and see, do they have similar contours? Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, as a spoiler, I would say to my mind, yeah, plausibly, yes. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, as you mentioned, it's like, you know, you look at one of these, uh, uh, one of my limitations, which I've tried to turn into an advantage, is um, uh, is not being a trained scientist myself. I can't understand the equations. And so my job is to try to take very complicated stuff and express it as simply as possible to myself. And then try to share that with others as well. So like I said, one of the things is if you can take that very jiggly graph um, well, how does it relate to what we hear? And we have some ideas about what those like sound ranges are. And so I said, how simple could you make your analysis of the sound and still have it be meaningful? Mm -hmm. I don't think it was actually a quote from Einstein, but people like to attribute to him, which says, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Um, <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, uh, anyone who's the, the article is also up there for anyone to look at. I don't want to go all through it, but yeah. And again, that's strad3d.org. Org. Yeah, it's, it's hard to visualize all of this in this kind of medium, but for a deeper dive. Right. Well, it's it's you know it's it's a strad magazine article. It's not that technical. So if any of you are interested, there it is. <laughs> okay. The point though was there there is um, a, a a basic point of um, tenant of faith, which is that the things we do make a difference in a way that is rational ultimately. Yeah. Now, not, that may or may not be true. And, um, um, but if you want, if you want, if we want to be working in any organized way and, 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 and improve our craft or, or meet the demands of a, a client, yeah. You have to believe that the things you do will make a difference. And if you do them in a better way or a different way, it'll either be better or worse. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what are we doing? Um, yes. So, um, so anyway, this whole thing, like, you know, the, the upshot of it is like, it was to me a proof of what I already knew is that 
you know, you make it look like a specific strad, it will behave something like a specific strad. Therefore, it's not, uh, it's not wood from the Little Ice Age or varnish with, you know, with minerals or, um, I mean, it might be that as well. I'm not saying no. I'm just saying it's like what they did, we could do in principle, we could yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, right. So that's, that's, that's what it, you know, so there's the proof of concept. That's incredibly empowering. Um, I have several questions I want to get to. Um, I could talk about this the, the whole time, but me too, um, so stop you, me. <laughs> <laughs> you did mention the demands of the client. Mm. And I think that many people in this field are very curious about what it's like to be in your position. Uh, you are a, an in-demand maker, to put it mildly. I'm and a yeah, <laughs> uh, and a gifted guy. And uh, part of what I would expect comes with the job, uh, there are musicians that give so much of themselves to their art. They are in service of their violin that idiosyncrasies in their life can arise. There were, there's one fellow you worked with in the book, Gene Drucker, um, who was concerned that he might sound crazy. I didn't think he did um, because he needed to order his life a certain way to become a really good player. And I imagine that you run into that often. And uh, it takes a certain kind of person to really deeply listen with empathy to really understand what people are talking about, to really meet their needs. Can you share a little bit more about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, working with musicians is, I am a musician myself um, and uh, not at the level of any of my clients. I'm a fiddle player myself in my other alternate life. But, um, you know, when I work with, um, I mean, I would say almost any of my clients, every single one of my clients, I could not do what they do. I consider them um, uh, artists of the highest level. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, even, you know, uh, and I'm really privileged in New York and the way things have worked out to work with a lot of, you know, people who are in very demanding positions, high profile musicians. Uh, there are no humans on earth that are more trained than they are. Um, uh, there's no athletes who are more trained than they are. There's no scientists that are more trained than they are in their field. Um, and, uh, it is my, you know, my privilege to try to support what they do, but more important, it's like, if I don't, if I'm not able to trust and listen to what they say, then I'm just, you know, uh, closing myself off to the most valuable kind of feedback that I could get. And even if someone is expressing something that I can't, I don't understand it. I don't hear it it doesn't mean that it's not there. I mean, why would I be able to perceive everything they perceive? So it's my job to open myself up and to, you know, that's where words come into it. Like, you know, when I work with musicians here in my, my, my studio, um, I have a room that's set up and, you know, they'll play for me and they'll, you know, usually they come in, they play the Chacon or something. And it's like, I've been waiting for them to be done. And I say, could you just like play a little more on the G string? Um, <laughs> and then, I, and then they explain something about it and they say, could I try it for a minute? And I try it and I say, it seems like a little, like it's not speaking well down here on the bottom. Is that what you mean? And they say, yes, that's what I mean. Um, and I said, okay, we're beginning to understand each other a little bit. Um, and, 
you know, even with Gene, Gene is a, Gene is a great artist and he's a very sensitive individual and he is sensitive about being so sensitive. People, te- you know, it's like, it's hard, mm-hmm. but you know, I've told him, it's like, you know, the things that bother you, they might not bother somebody else as much, but they're definitely real. And, um, so, and I have learned so much from trying to understand the reality of some very, very subtle phenomena. And, um, uh, I have a feeling like, you know, I don't hear this as much, but I used to have some colleagues who, you know, amongst themselves would say, oh, I had this music client. What a pain, you know. Um, I just tapped my sound post setter against the F hole and they said, oh, it was better. And they went away. It's like, I swear to you, I wouldn't, I've never done that. Yeah. Um, um, Missed opportunity to learn. A missed opportunity, disrespectful and, um, and yeah, and, and a missed opportunity, like you say. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, I'm lucky in that I'm here in New York. I mean, it's not an easy place to live and it's not cheap um, and it's not low stress and all the rest, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I do get to see people like that. And um, I think, you know, some of my colleagues are a little scared of musicians because they yeah. have these demands that we don't know how to meet. That's so true. And right. So it's like, then those demands are just like, we just have to admit our powerlessness. Um, and uh, it's better just to say that the, the demands are excessive or um, just wait, just play it in, it'll improve, you know? Um, that's also something which I almost never say. It's true, the instruments will improve with playing, but it's just a useless thing to say in the middle of an, uh, of an adjustment session, to say, just wait, you know? so. Um, uh, so I've made it, I guess, a mission that there is pretty much no length that I will not go to try to um, improve an instrument or fix a problem for a client. And uh, there is no time of day or that I won't meet with them if it came to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad had a laundry, just by the way. And yes. uh, <laughs> uh, it was a pickup and delivery laundry. And he was very proud of what he did. It was hard work, and but he really felt like he was providing a service. And he would drive all over the city to pick up a, a load. And um, in, it's I don't consider myself any better. You know, I, I'm there's an aspect of what I do which is just like you know I'm picking up your laundry and I'll get out the stains. You know, um, it's it's like you know in the beginning of that book, like Marchese's uh, description of all the different types of skill sets that go into being a maker they're all very real you know there is like you know there's the shaman the carpenter yeah right well the shaman is also for real but you know there's like if you're a shaman and they ask you what you're doing you don't just say i'm just talking to the spirits you say well i'm mixing up these herbs and i'm addressing this spirit in particular whatever there's Mm -hmm. a technique to it right Mm -hmm. it's a technical profession being a shaman mind in the right mindset so that i can speak to the spirits yeah all those things you know i I mean even like one thing i just have to say is that you know uh if if you listen to me i might sound like i'm excessively um analytical about things but I myself don't know all the things that I that actually go into what I do, mm-hmm. um, and um, and so a lot part of my study of trying to understand things you, you could even say is trying to understand myself, you know. But it's like that's definitely a thing. Like that when I'm working with someone, I'm fully tuned in on all like on you know all my senses, and uh, we come out the other side and 
we usually all feel happier. Um, <laughs> I can't guarantee that there's not some shamanistic aspect to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned understanding yourself. Um, I would like to go into a, a, what I'd like to call it a speed round so that ah. the rest of the people can understand you a little bit better. I would like uh, very brief answers. If you can do one word, then that will help us all on the path of understanding you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> one so, word, that's not my specialty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or one phrase. Okay, um, we'll see what yeah. we can do. Most used tool in your arsenal. Knife. The best F-hole style. I have my own design. Okay. Uh, stamp or paper label? Um, calligraphy label. Calligraphy. Uh, favorite wood species. And stamp. Oh, and stamp. <laughs> favorite wood species for a Bax. Um, Bosnian maple. Which ride at Coney Island do you prefer to take clients on? Not our. Not not my bag. <laughs> <laughs> like my boys, my sons made me ride the cyclone just to you know. <laughs> What's the worst way someone has mangled your last name? Oh, there's no limit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the worst was I got a letter addressed to 246 Montovich, which if you look at a Z and a Y and a G. If violin making was a job that did not exist, what would your job be? Uh, I mean, uh, if there was money in it, I'd be a fiddle player professionally. In all the five boroughs, who has the best pizza? Brooklyn by far. <laughs> What's your favorite bluegrass song to play? Fox on the Run. <laughs> <laughs> No, I actually don't play that one. It's just stuck in my mind. Okay. <laughs> if you had to copy one famous violin over and over for the rest of your life, which one would it be? The Plowden Guarneri. I knew you were going to say Plowden. <laughs> the only thing you're not super forthcoming with in your book was your varnish recipe, which has set the world aflame with theories and conjecture. So I need to know. Is it true that you blend into your varnish granules of moon dust retrieved from the dark side of the moon? No comment. <laughs> I might. <laughs> Is it true that you only use seed lac in your varnish from the sacred lac bugs that are raised in Tibetan temples for their clarity of color? I use seed lac for like overcoats. And my favorite stuff is this really gritty, grainy, green, brown stuff that I've had forever because it looks most like old, crappy, oxidized retouching. And no comment on where it's from, huh? Who knows? I think so. <laughs> Is it true that you use the blood of your long past wife in your varnish to keep her memory alive? And over generations, the violin dramatically impacts all who own it, traveling through several countries until one day it draws the attention of Samuel L. Jackson at an auction house. Well, not yet, but it's not over yet. <laughs> in five words, how does the rest of your life unfold? Hopefully more of the same. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Zygmuntovich, thank you for being on OMO. Well, thank you. Between Chicago and the West Coast, you won't find a violin shop with a more finely curated selection of instruments and bows than Claire Givens Violins in Minneapolis. The Givens team is made up of knowledgeable players who take pride in helping their customers find the right instrument or bow. Their international reputation is founded upon a commitment to maintaining high levels of expertise, craftsmanship, and relationships with customers spanning across generations. 
Every instrument and bow offered at Claire Givens Violins is set up in their very own workshop by an experienced team of restorers and makers under the longtime expert leadership of Douglas Lay. Need a checkup or a more extensive restoration? The workshop is known for its attention to sound and response, and players come from all over for this unmatched level of precision and care. If you're an early music player, check out Dipper Restorations, where world-renowned restorer and scholar Andrew Dipper specializes in the restoration of historical musical instruments and the making of historic replica bows. Need a checkup? Looking for an upgrade? Check out GivensViolins.com. They look forward to seeing you. The 2023 Violin Society of America Convention and Competition in Baltimore, Maryland is happening November 15th to 18th. This year, you can expect exhibits of new and rare instruments, compelling speakers and presentations, hands-on demonstrations of instrument and bow restoration and making, updates on endangered materials, and a panel of past VSA competition medal winners. Several members of Team OMO will be there, including our own Brandon Godman leading a trivia night. See all the other luthier friends you never get to see. Join us at the Marriott Baltimore Inner Harbor. Registration is open now, so visit www.vsaweb.org to sign up today and find more details. Again, register today at www.vsaweb.org. Okay, Rodney, your turn. Come to VSAB. Sign up at www.vsaweb.org. I look forward to seeing you. This is this is this is this is and this is the coda. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is Rosie Deloach again, and again, I'm here with Catherine Kidwell. Hello, hello. I should mention you're coming to us from a beautiful place. Um, a minute ago, I saw a ladder in the background. You did. It almost fell on me, but it's fine. It's in a safe location now. I'm recording again from a closet, but this time a different closet than last time. So we're just, we're mixing it up a little bit here. (laughs) This is what we do. We're very closeted folks here at OMO. (laughs) What I do. Uh, You had a memory come loose about your childhood when you were listening to Sam's interview. I did. So when he mentioned putting like pins or needles through the calluses on your fingers now that's not something I did because I I it freaked me out a little bit but all the kids in my home economics classes growing up would constantly do that and just have like sewing needles sticking through their fingers (laughs) (laughs) no I missed that stage somehow that that was not a part of my upbringing I don't know why I missed out on that I don't think you missed out that badly. (laughs) (laughs) I just had the kid that like ate glue. That's all. Yeah. Speaking of glue, you wanted to say something about glue. (laughs) Yeah. I just learned about gluey today. I didn't know about gluey. I'm knowing about gluey. I know. Its name is so endearing, too. Um, I absolutely love that idea. I think that's a fantastic way to test things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I know there's pictures out there. Maybe we can find them and include them when we when we drop this episode. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, yeah. if we can find them. I'd yeah. love to see them. Yes, yes. Well, that was a lot of fun for me. And uh, 
just want to say coming up, we have got some great episodes. We have next month, next month will be November. That's right. It will be, how do you focus? And I have a lot to say about this. I don't know if this is something that has concerned you in your life, Catherine, just how do you actually give time and effort and focus to really doing what you're doing on your workbench well? Oh, absolutely. And especially now that I've been working from home in the last uh, year and a half, it's quite distracting with everything else because there's always something else I could be doing in the house as well. Or I have pets and they like to get involved. But yeah, it's it's hard to just sit down and focus for a day of work. It's a lot of walking away and coming back to it. So I'm I'm looking forward to that episode to learn some new ways to focus. See, I, I have a whole different complaint because I have all the interruptions at the business with people constantly walking in, which we want that business. That's fantastic. We want to help solve their problems. But when it comes to actually executing a repair properly, it's really difficult sometimes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it goes both ways. Uh, I think Jason's going to have a lot to say and myself. I'll have a lot to say too about how you manage a business and manage other employees and all the other little myriad things that come up. Like now the AC is not working or now QuickBooks is being weird or the phone stopped working or <laughs> yeah, I just, I just want to rehair this bow. Uh, so so I, I think we've got a lot to say on this subject. Uh, December, uh, we have something coming up. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I am going to be taking over that episode a little bit. A little while ago, I, I left my job to pursue more education uh, in the field of Luthery. I did not attend a formal school for this. I've been learning a little bit, uh, flying by the seat of my pants and learning on the job and then finding people to learn from. And so think we're going to talk a little bit about non-traditional forms of education and how to find them. That's right. That's right. How do you make your own school? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and if you are approaching people to learn from, how do you do that? How do you do that in a respectful way? Yeah. It's it took a lot of thought on how to do that. <laughs> Did you bring muffins? <laughs> you know, actually First time I met Jerry, I did bring him chocolate chip cookies. That's so, what got you in. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's what's done it for me. It's usually sweets or, or alcohol is what people have received. Yep, that'll do it. Yep, that will do it. <laughs> well, I, uh, I want to say a special thanks. We have two new Patreon members from this summer. I apologize that I'm just now getting around to sharing. Thank you. I believe it's Graham Ravel. Um, that's what I picked up from your first name and your email and, um, and Larry Atha. Thank you guys for your support. And if anybody else wants to, uh, support us and help us pay our bills for hosting the stuff, then you can go to patreon.com. I believe it's patreon.com slash omopod, or if that's not just search omo and, and you'll get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I want to say special thanks to some people that helped me come out with the speed round for Sam today, including you, Catherine, uh, the rest of the OMO team, Jackson Maberry, and Chris Jacoby. Uh, thank you for helping that sparkle. 
And to all of you guys out there, I hope you have an omotastic day. Thank you for being a part. You guys all, every one of you out there, you help move the ship forward. You are helping make a better musical experience for the world. Thank you for what you do. Omo is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com or call the Omophone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.